four. College while black, give yourselves a round of applause. All right, I'm here. My name's Jason, and I'm here at Dillard University, and I have about several students here on campus that range from freshmen and sophomores um, that would like to introduce themselves. I'm Abriana Exum. I'm 18 years old from Oklahoma City, and I am a marketing major. My name is Taylor Pons. I'm also from Oklahoma City. I'm 19 years old and I'm an accounting major. My name is Khadija Fashion. I'm 18 years old from Baton Rouge and I'm a biology major. I'm Noah Armstrong, 18 years old from Dallas, Texas and I'm a criminal justice major. I'm Lydia Page Moffitt. I'm 19 years old from Mobile, Alabama and I'm a sophomore majoring in political science. I'm Peyton Parrish. I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> I'm 18 years old and I'm a freshman majoring in urban studies and sociopathology. Hi, I'm Destiny Willingham, a computer science major from Atlanta, Georgia, age 18. My name is Yaliana Phoenix. I'm 18 years old from Gretna, Louisiana. My major is criminal science. My name is Alicia Carter. I'm 18 years old from La Plata, Louisiana, and I'm a biology major. Hi, I'm Lauren Rhodes. I'm 18 years old and I am a freshman English major from Thibodeau, Louisiana. Hi, I'm Myria Bashir Walls from Chicago, Illinois. I'm a pre-med biology major and I'm a freshman. Hi, my name is Jalen Pena. I'm 18 and I am a freshman political science major from New Britain, Connecticut. Uh, my name is Jason Florentino. I'm from New York City. Um, I'm 18 years old and I'm majoring in criminal justice. All right, guys. So this past weekend, well, this past week rather, on Mondays, October eighth, you guys had a special guest on campus uh, for your annual Brain Food, Candace Owens, um, a conservative uh, pundit who likes to go on the news and uh, tell her views, and she got a chance to talk about her politics here on campus, uh, and we're gonna get into an audio clip um, where she spoke 
about you know debating uh, certain black intellectuals. We're gonna see what you guys think about it. Let's hear that clip right now. And by the way, this is the very first HBCU that I've ever been invited to. I was just speaking with your president about that. Thank you for having me. But that's an interesting little tidbit because one of the things that I always get is, well, why doesn't she go speak at black schools? Black schools don't invite me to come speak. I go speak wherever I'm invited. I want my ideas to get back. I'm, I believe in my ideas, and I'm not afraid to have my ideas met with a challenge. So of course I, I want to go speak to any in any climate whatsoever. I heard last week that you guys, or, or the last speaking guest that you guys had was one of the, the Me Too founders, and I'm adamantly opposed to the Me Too movement. And I speak out against that, but I can guarantee you, if I had come forward and I said that I wanted to debate that individual, it would have been declined. I have asked to debate pretty much every black leader that has different views from me. Almost all of them, really. Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, Angela Rye, who got back, T.I. sent her a text and said, Candace would like to debate you because Kanye put me in touch with T.I. And she said, oh, oh no, I don't want to debate her. She was mean to my mentor, Maxine Waters. If you're up on CNN every night and you genuinely believe what you believe, if you're representing black people, wouldn't you want to stand on stage with somebody that disagrees with you and slaughter her? Wouldn't you, if you think that my ideas are so bad, it should be pretty simple to stand on the stage with Candace Owens and make me look like a Nazi sympathizer. And we're back. So um, we heard, you know, Candace obviously um, has a problem with getting in touch with uh, certain black intellectuals that she would like to debate. And that brought up an interesting question that I wanted to bring to you students. Do you feel like it's healthy to have a conversation about your different political opinions among your peers, even if one of them swings hard to the left or to the right? Absolutely. You can't be afraid to disagree with one another just because your viewpoints don't align with each other. Um, you know, I may be sitting next to someone who is a strong, strong conservative where I may be a Democrat and someone else may be a liberal while someone else may be an independent, then it's important to have contradiction because without that contradiction, you can't make progression. You have to go into different viewpoints and ideas with an open mind so that you can actually make some type of positive change. And that comes with arguing, essentially. So um, yeah, I think it's very important to definitely have conversations with colleagues who differ um, politically from your ideas. I think that it can be important, but sometimes it can also be mute. Like for me to have an educated conversation with somebody who is equally as educated about something that they believe that's different from my beliefs, that's going to help me educationally. For me to argue with somebody who is closed-minded, who doesn't even want to hear my side of the opinion and also is not even factually on the same level as me, that's unimportant. And I feel like, you know, we can give everyone a time to speak and we can give everybody, you know, like a time to go and go on their rants and that's all fine and dandy. But if nobody's actually giving good feedback, nobody's actually talking about real issues, then all we're doing is causing this this dissension between people on campus and among our peers that isn't actually healthy because we're not bettering each other. We're just trying to prove a point. Well, my grandma always told me that, um, you know, when she would feed me medicine that um, it might not taste good, but it's still good for you. And I feel like a lot of times that's what people need to realize when it comes to intellectual conversations that even though it doesn't taste good, it's still going to be good for you because it kind of broadens your horizons more. 
and you see different um, different perspectives and different viewpoints. And I and I remember when Trump was first running for office, um, you know, we went through this town and we seen nothing but Trump signs and Confederate flags. And it was kind of like a culture shock to me because my whole life, I grew up knowing people who, you know, the typical people who would hate Trump or who would, you know, not support him. So to see a whole town who, you know, was behind him was kind of mind blowing to me. But I think that it's important that I saw that so I can know um, because I feel like it's a difference between not knowing and not caring or, you know, not knowing and not wanting that information and then not knowing and, and not getting that information. So. I would say yes to discussions, but not to debates. Because the question I would ask is, what's your intent? I feel like debates are arguments and they attack to win, while group discussions are exchange of ideas and opinions. And the thing Candace does, she uh, challenges people to debates, which I don't really agree with, because I feel like that undermines others' opinions and views. Mm, that's interesting. Anybody else? Um, you know, they always say there's two sides to every story, and I feel it's important to have discussions. That way you can see where other people are coming from and, um, you know, just educate yourself. Even though that's not what you believe, you should still be educated on what others believe and what's going on um, on each side of every story. Yeah, I, I like to tell people all the time, people think it's crazy, but I watch Fox News like once a week um, just to see what crazy white people are talking about. <laughs> um, and it's really funny like when you watch it because it's so sensationalized uh, to the point where like it's like a reality show almost. But when you watch CNN, I feel like it's the same thing. Uh, CNN has gotten away, in my opinion, from actually telling the news sometimes. And it's just more so about let's put Angela Rye and let's put this or Bakari Sellers or let's put Mark Lamont Hill on TV and put the most conservative person that we can that shouldn't be on TV probably and give them a platform to talk about their bigotry. And that bothers me because you know what's about to happen. Like you know that it's about to be, you know, a shit show for lack of better words, but they do it anyway. And it's like, there's so many other news stories that you could be talking about, but instead you're just doing this and as she said earlier, like we're not having groups discussions anymore. I often say that we have dualogue instead of dialogue, meaning that we talk at each other instead of actually talking to each other. Um, because when people debate, they have this intent to win the argument instead of actually having the intent to share an idea that a person probably would have never thought of from your perspective. Anybody else? Go ahead. Group discussions are healthy because they force you to do more research, and in that, they either reinforce your views or force you to reconsider your views. Okay. I think discussions are healthy because you can learn more about that person. Like you meet best friends with somebody, not know like where they think. Also, it can help you cross think a different way than you used to think. It actually opens your mind to like learn new things and see and discover new things. Um, I feel like discussions are important because you're talking to each other to see how you're arguing, such as debates, you're arguing and attacking one another. All right. Well, that concludes this topic. We're about to get to something else that Candace said, and we'll be right back. Okay, and we're back. Um, on our next topic, we're going to actually 
dive into uh, critical thinking, Candace Owens brought up a really, really interesting point about critical thinking. And uh, as I like to call it, sheet mentality, following what everybody is saying instead of critically thinking for themselves. Let's listen to that clip right now. I was always a critical thinker. This is the way that I came out of the womb. People say, how do you do what you do? Where did this come from? Where did this boldness come up to stand up and to challenge the narrative? And the truth is, I was genuinely born this way. The, the videos of me as a little girl, when I watch them now, my mom says, oh, you're gonna get a daughter just like you. I really hope not, but I do think that there's something to be said for someone that's willing to push back and to ask their parents why. Critical thinking. Nobody critically thinks anymore, you just accept it. Whatever somebody tells you, you accept it. You're angry, you're upset, you don't even stop to ask yourself why you're angry or why you're upset. All right, we've heard Candace's words, now I wanna hear you guys. Do you think we as a society critically think anymore or is it a lost art among us? Uh, personally, I don't think we critically think, not anymore. I mean, a small amount of the United States, they do, they will continue to critically think and they will always critically think. But in terms of population-wise, seeing as we're mostly based off of like the baby boomer generation, which is you know the majority of the electorate currently, we don't critically think as in, we only think about as far as our next paycheck or how we're gonna be affected directly. We're not thinking 10 years down the line, 12 years down the line, and we don't think about in terms of race and in terms of blackness. We personally, as a people, don't think about anything else other than ourselves, not in a bad way, not in a self-centered way, but in a, how can we further ourselves? How can we be for the advancement of black people in America currently? We don't think about how are we gonna do this 50 years down the road? We try to get everything as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. It just takes us time. Instant gratification. Um, here, to be clear, when she was talking about how we as a people don't critically think, she was trying to throw her in the we as black people, which she ain't in the we. But us as black people, <laughs> to be clear, black children especially are taught not to critically mm -hmm. think. We aren't, think really back to when you think about kids, especially black kids, or just, and kids in general. We're born critically thinking. You tell a kid to do something, they're like, why? And you tell them, because this, well, why? Well, and well, don't do this. Why? 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 And the kid, and they, they give it your nerves, and then finally you hit, cause I said so. Why? And you hear that from babies all the time. But it's like black kids growing up, that's what you hear. Not well, you know, don't do this because this is the result. This is how it's gonna affect you, and this is what it'll affect you in the long run. It's because I said so. So don't do it. Well, why'd you say so? Oh, you're being defiant. You're being smart. Now you're getting a whip. Like you're getting whooped. You're getting um. Um, disciplined because you asked the question after they already told you the answer was because they told you to. So we're taught that us thinking is defiance. It's it's going against, and that's in our own community. Then branch out, we get a little older, we're outside of our mom and dad's house, and then, you know, you ask a teacher why, and you're in trouble in school. Go a little further out, you ask politics, like, uh, sorry, you ask political figures and all this different stuff why, and it's like, shut up. Y'all know what y'all talking about anyway. So it's like, you can't say that we the people, whatever, anyways, that us people, that black people, real black people, don't critically think because it's like, it's not that we wouldn't or that we can't, but rather as we're not allowed to in our mm. essence, like even since yeah. we're children. Mm. 
just to give a different perspective on the same topic, um, I want to address how some people aren't bold enough to critically think. Mm. Um, and I want to reference back to slavery, how we know about Nat Turner and Harriet Tubman. Those were, they were actually critical thinkers um, within that time because they challenged, you know, what they were taught, you know, what their situation and everything else. Um, if we look back, the people who challenge thinking the most and challenge, you know, the norms the most have typically been people who were, you know, impactful to us as a race. Like the people who said, um, like Martin Luther King or even Malcolm X, you know, like saying like, we don't have to live like this, you know, just because we're, we've been living like this for years we don't have to continue the same pattern of living. And I think that's a form of critical thinking that we don't really address, that it's some, it's some patterns of, it's some patterns that as black people we know, it's some traditions that we know, like Lauren said, like that, like that's in most black homes, you know, like don't talk back, don't be defiant and all of that. And to think beyond that and think critically within that situation is I think, so I believe that critical thinking is a skill that not everybody has is you either have it or you don't like, um, you know, some people are musically uh, inclined and some people are they can think better than others. And I know like how I was raised. My mom, she told me to do something. You don't ask why. So the I feel like a lot of people are raised that way. So it's not that they don't know. Um, some people don't know how to think, but it's not that they can't think for themselves. It's just this is how you are raised. So when you see somebody do something or somebody tells you to do something, you do it and you don't ask questions. Like a lot of people are that way. Hmm. So uh, one interesting thing about critical thinking is for me personally, um, I kind of grew up feeling the same way you did, Lauren. Um, in the sense that when you're growing when you're growing up in a black household, I grew up with two grandparents that were born in the 1920s that were raising me. So if my grandma said do something, there was no ask why. If you ask why, you went to go get a switch outside, which I don't know if y'all are old enough to actually remember when you picked out your own switch. <laughs> and you can't get the small one because you had to go back out there and get another one. Yeah, so like growing up in that type of environment, like, I always knew, and they always knew that I was a really, really intelligent kid, much more intelligent, and they fed me so much information through Hooked on Phonics and me reading the dictionary and all these other different things. And so I was able to, you know, critically think at a very, very young age, and I would challenge authority a lot because of that. I don't even understand how I ended up in the military because I always grew up challenging authority. So how was I really going to adjust to being in the military when somebody gives you an order or a command that that's what you do. Like when I was in basic training, my drill sergeant told me, you're never gonna be a great NCO, but you're gonna make a great officer. And he said, why? He said, because NCOs don't ask questions, they just take orders. Officers ask questions because they have to make sure that they look good. Uh, so I've always found that fascinating. I think that that type of idea with black people, especially with black parents, not allowing their kids to ask why is changing. Um, especially among millennial parents and you know myself I have a lot of I just from 
personal experience seeing my friends be parents now as a millennial uh, in my, you know, upper age, you know, being 28 and seeing my friends now that are married with kids, they're much different than they were when they were being raised by their parents. Um, they've let go of a lot of the old teachings. I have par- I have friends that don't spank their kids because they talk critically. To, they, they speak intellectually to them. And because of that, you know, these kids have, you know, developing, you know, developing minds and they're able to understand what they're saying. So they can say one thing to them and they good. Like for other kids, you know, some things are reinforced and that's okay. I'm not saying that spanking is, I don't, it, I won't get my opinion on it personally because that's not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> but as far as like with critical thinking, I think it is a lost art. I actually agree with Candace on that because some people do have a sheep mentality to a lot of things. Just because somebody says that one thing is something, nobody actually fact checks or says anything. We live in an age of spin in this country where if you can spin the story to make it sound like everybody's going to roll with it, you roll with it. And nobody actually says, let me go to Google and actually fact check that. And also when it comes to Google, most people stop searching for something when it's not on the first page. So right after it's not on the first page, they're just like, oh, well, mm, I'm not going to look for it. I'll just believe what what I'm going to believe. And that's it. I was more raised, like, not even raised, like, just forced to be a critical thinker. Like, I was, me and my brother, we were those two kids, like, at the barbecue, and, you know, you would say something, out, quote, unquote, out of line, and, you know, somewhere on TV, like, who kids are these? Like, you know, you let them speak to you like that, blah, 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 because I would ask a question, you know, like I said. So, for me, critical thinking is just being bold. To expand your mind. Those are really good um, responses. Wow. Um, I think we should question authority, and I think we should question what these people are feeding our minds. Because if I believed everything someone told me, I wouldn't even be here. Um, I feel like we spent all these years in school, thirteen years, and no one taught us how to think, let alone critical think. And me personally, I just decided to. I decided to go outside of the boundaries and the boxes that education put me in. Well, mm. the educational system put me in. And uh, the education system alone is, like, really crippling. Mm. Um, it's like the teacher knows everything and the students know nothing. And I still experience that today while in college. Mm. And that needs to be fixed. So if we want to talk about critical thinking, we also need to talk about the education system. I was raised on the thought of a time and a place to do things. Mm. And sometimes it's like you can't always ask why. For example, if your boss says you just drop this piece of work, don't be a good time to ask him why should I have to do it. But if your counselor tells you, no, you can't take this class, then you ask him why. So I believe if you should be able to, but at the right moment. You don't do it just because it could have negative feedback against you. Um, I think that as far as politics, um, there is no critical thinking that's that's enforced because people like Candace Owens, I feel like she's designed to provoke, she's designed to provoke thought, but also to be on the side and for us to, she wants us to be on the side with her, even though we clearly were not, a lot of, a majority of us clearly were not on that side that she was trying to get us on, but she wants us to, I feel like it's just designed to make us feed into like political party binaries. Like it's one or the other. It's, it's black and white. It's not like you can't have different political views and merge them together because that's wrong. So I just feel like it's it's just set up to have us on the side. So. Um, 
In my opinion, as minorities in America, we aren't given the opportunity to become critical thinkers. Like, anytime we try to become critical thinkers or question uh, authority or anything, like, in that sense, we get frowned upon and we're restricted and we get punished. So, in my opinion, like, going along with what a lot of you said, like, it's something that we as a whole, if we're going to try and overcome the uh, problems in our society and stuff, we all have to come together and question the authority. We can't go one by one and do it. We have to all come together. And that's one thing that I, that I just think of. Also, just to call out hypocrisy, I think it's interesting that she talks about how, you know, challenge authority and critical think, but then we were in there and we were critically thinking and we were challenging her. Right. She called us emotional. We were right. loud and emotional and rowdy. And if she had gone to another school, i.e. a white school, then they would have at least let her speak. And that's and it's just going back to playing into that narrative of, you know, Critically think, but think to yourself. Don't say it out loud. And when you're critically thinking and you know that, like, that is some stuff that, like, ain't adding up and you get upset about it, don't actually say it to me because now you're challenging me and we don't like that. That makes you emotionally rowdy. And since you brought it up about her, you know, being condescending in the way that she spoke to you guys, which is something that I noticed observing because I was really there to observe as I sat there and... You know, I did ask a question because my question was, you know, what can your brand of politics do for black women? Um, because it doesn't seem to actually help black women at all. And she did not answer my question, which she didn't answer a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, she kind of circled the wagons and she's kind of a whataboutism freak is what I like to call it. Like you answer a question with another question. When I brought up um, when I brought up a question, uh, particularly because Dr. Kimbrough read it, I brought up a question about the war on drugs that was started by Ronald Reagan and, and Richard Nixon, which is documented in this country. There are documentaries on this, you know, and the first thing she did was go to Bill Clinton. I didn't say anything about Bill Clinton and the crime bill. I know that Bill Clinton put more black people in jail than ever in this country's history during his administration, but I didn't ask you about that because she assumed that everyone that was asking a question was a liberal or was a Democrat. And as someone, as you said earlier, that this type of sensationalized like verbiage that she had and like stance that she had when she came in, she doesn't have this when she visits white institutions. Mm -hmm. But because this was her first black institution, she assumed that everybody was already on edge, which there were a couple of people that were. And, you know, telling black people that they can't respond with emotion is silly because one everybody is emotional and your emotions are valid. So let's just start there, like when we unpack that. So one, your emotions are valid. And two, you can't tell somebody who lives an experience of blackness that they've never been oppressed and that you're not living in oppression. And so for her to say that is very, very myopic is the word that, I, that comes to mind because it lacks imagination. It's just generalizing because it's funny to me that a person can say that they're you know against anti-bullying but then they seem to bully the conversation when they're having a conversation that with with people I like I asked the question last night um at part two of the brain food if you were a republican and Candace Owens came to speak at you know on your campus do you think and you brought a friend who did not lean to the left or to the right do you think that they would want to be a conservative after that probably not 
probably if you're going to talk to somebody like that. And a lot of people always assume that, well, the, you know, the kids were rowdy and all this other thing. And that, that dips into anti-blackness because it always feels like black women and black people in particular in general are hostile. Yeah. So like that idea, I push back against that idea immediately because if you said something that was offensive to white people in a big room of white people, they would be just as emotional. And you wouldn't say that, oh, they're just operating off of emotion. You would say that they're upset. But when it's a black person, all of a sudden is, oh, you guys are operating out of emotion and you're not thinking critically or you're not being ethical and all of these other things. And that doesn't really make any sense. The math don't math to me. But and it brings up an interesting thing I saw in one of her videos, because these people, um, these like anti-Trump supporters had gone to a Trump rally. And in the video, the Trump supporters, as soon as they walked in, they didn't have they did not say a word. But they had, you know, like LGBT shirts and signs and all this other stuff. They didn't say anything, but they walked in. Immediately, the Trump supporters got into an uproar. They started pushing them and spitting on them and doing all these things. They were so in. And she did an entire video about this. And in that video, she's talking about these white people and she calls them passionate. Well, they're passionate about what they believe in. And so, of course, whenever you're passionate, you, you sometimes do things, you sometimes act out because it's passion. But when she came to our school mm. and offended us on our stage mm -hmm. after being paid to come to speak to our people, we weren't passionate, we were rowdy, we were loud, we were all these things, these words that white people use to oppress black people and make us seem animalistic, and we're not. Mm. Of course we were passionate, you know? We were passionate too, we were upset too. Not only did, you know, she not come in and peacefully protest she got on there and she tried to offend us and then whenever we got passionate it's not passion it's it's you know this sense of black people not knowing how to control themselves because mm -hmm. if i would have gone to another school at least they would have let me speak right. what mm -hmm. right. girl bye yeah so um I completely agree, and if I'm not mistaken, I heard a lot of you say that when she first arrived here, she came off as very uh, flippant and condescending, like when, um, you know, you guys cooked for her. Um, I was not aware because I ain't get no food. Uh, <laughs> when I came, I got a couple of sandwiches and some Poway, but I ain't get no steak and shrimp. And I was like... So what you mean? I don't get no food like that. Like I was like, well, come on, man. Like maybe it's because I didn't have a contract. I'm just, uh, you know, next time I come in for the next podcast, you know, hopefully, you know, I'll get the red card, the red carpet treatment. But I found that to be interesting, and I love for you guys to comment on that and talk about that, Lauren, if you could. So, um, yeah. So Brain Food is a series where different speakers get to come, and their whole purpose is to interact with students. So when a brain food speaker comes, Dr. Kimbrough sends out this thing where certain students get to eat lunch with the speaker. So first it's sent to produce students, then to student leaders, which, you know, um, I am, and then to the rest of the student body. We get to go in, talk to the speaker, ask questions and all this other kind of stuff, and get to engage in them. And this is a tradition for brain food before the actual event, because obviously you're not going to get to go into each question in the event. So for brain food, this time we're all there. Um, Dr. Kimbrough had steak and grilled shrimp and this shrimp sauce and, and all these different, I mean, gourmet food and the nice glasses they brought out, like we did it up. And you also have to come to dinner well-dressed, you know, you have to come professionally. So first, it started at six. She arrives at about 6.25, so she was late. 
And whenever On she, CB time. Whenever she, <laughs> whenever she walked in, she like damn near had a security decal. Like somebody was going to shank her. So then she breaks off from them, and she was just with this other woman, and she walks in the brain, I mean, in the little area where we're all eating, and there's a whole group of us. We're all in here waiting to speak to her. And then she looked at us, and I actually, verbally, I actually said, hey, do you need a seat? Because I had saved a seat for her, specifically. And <laughs> a lot of the other, like, the rest of the room was all filled up. And then she looked. She didn't actually acknowledge me. She looked at Dr. Kimbrough, who was sitting there, and she was like, actually, I ate before I got here, so you can just take me to wherever I'm eating. I mean, wow. sorry, to wherever oh, wow. I'm speaking, I'll wait in there. Wow. So, and the thing to me was that, one, okay, so you already ate. You don't have to eat, but you have guests here that are literally here for you. So if you're not eating, sit down and drink some water and engage us because we literally are here. I missed practice to come here so that I could talk to you so I can give you the opportunity to tell me about your opinion. But because you assumed that I was going to attack you or we were going to attack you, you didn't even grace us with your ever so wonderful presence and went and sat in the brain food, I mean, and sat in the auditorium to wait until we were finished. And I thought that was, that was rude from the jump. That was hella rude from the jump. Like I was done by then. Honestly, it was her approach. Like, her approach really bothered me. I feel, and I say I feel because I'm an emotional being, a human being, um, that she didn't use in that as, I didn't, she didn't use the platform as an opportunity to educate. Um, we, all in all, this is a university and we are here to learn and explore. And I don't think she was trying to educate, but she did a very good job at belittling and undermining our beliefs. And one of the things that I noticed about her was that she spoke so much about us being so emotional, but she would use emotionally driven words. Like when she asked about us having feminist, um, a, fem a feminism class um, on campus, and um, we were like, no, she's like, good, because I hate feminists. Mm. Like, that's such an emotionally driven word, so how do you expect people to respond to that? And she looked at us like we were crazy when everybody was like, yeah, because they were shocked. And that's actually something that we're going to talk about, and we're going to take a really quick break, and we're actually going to play that soundbite when she was talking about feminism in question, and we're going to come right back to this conversation. So we'll be right back. When um, I was in school, I was forced to take, um, for my gen ed requirements, Feminism 101. Um, does anybody take feminism courses here? You guys have, or, or is it, you guys have feminism courses here? Good. Good. I hate feminism. So, no, we're all get into it. Yeah, I know. Surprise. Yeah. So I was forced to take feminism 101. It's interesting. I know you're like, how can you say you hate? I hate feminism. I'm, I'm, I am not a feminist. Proudly not a feminist, and I can explain to you why. Um, so my freshman year, I was, I, I was in this course, and I had no feeling about whether I was feminist or not. I didn't really care for it. I honestly didn't know why I had to take the class, least of all why I had to pay for it. Um, you know, when you're in college, you're the person that's paying for the classes. So to be forced to take something that has nothing to do with your major seems a little weird. Why are we suddenly taking classes like Feminism 101 and Gender Studies as opposed to taking hard academics? And I had this teacher, and she was, I guess, if you had to create a stereotype of what you imagine a feminist to be, she was exactly that, you know, really someone who hated men. I, I became very apparent to me at the point of the course 
was for me to walk away feeling that men were oppressive to women. Now, in my life, I had a, a very good um, relationship with my father. I was raised in a household uh, by my grandfather who eventually took us out of that low-income housing structure and, and raised us. And my grandfather was the closest person to me today. Um, and he is a person that shaped all of my ideas, even though um, he thought he was a Democrat, I guess, you know, coming from the civil rights era. So um, growing up in a household with my grandfather, who was born in Fayetteville, North Carolina, uh, his first job was when he was five years old, picking cotton um, and laying tobacco out to dry in a hot attic. He married my grandmother when he was 17, stayed married to her until her dying day in 2013. Um, and to me, their relationship represented something that was very healthy, the archetype of a man, the archetype of a woman. It was the most steady thing in my entire life and in my entire childhood because my parents had a very um, hectic and erratic relationship until they separated. So arriving into a household where people were trying, into a classroom, pardon, where people were trying to disrupt that archetype and suddenly say that this was all toxic. I was hearing phrases I had never heard before, like toxic masculinity, that's a, that's a new one. I think that's emerged in the last five years. Toxic masculinity, like being a man is toxic. You know, all of these ideas, which in my opinion have turned men into wimps. I mean, I'm, I'm just gonna be honest with you. Seeing men walk around in t-shirts that say I'm a feminist, I don't like it. I think that it, there's, there are things that women bring to a table and we should be proud of that. There are things that men bring to a table and we should be proud of that. And, and trying to disrupt and have women be men and men be women is something that I personally didn't know I wasn't comfortable with, but became consciously uncomfortable with in this classroom. And we're back, guys. So we just heard Candace talk about feminism. And so I have a question for the people in the room. If feminism is defined as the theory of political, economic, and social equality of the sexes, then why do conservatives like Candace Owens have such an issue with it? Now, this is a really important conversation because when we talk about feminism, especially among black women, um, we're specifically talking about womanism uh, so that it intersects people of color, especially black women. And we know that feminism sometimes can be co-opted um, by white women, especially we've seen it in the Me Too movement, which Candace also spoke about that she doesn't support, which I have a problem with because I don't see how you can't support something that was started by a black woman herself. Um, but that's a whole nother issue in itself. But I want to get to the question at hand. Um, why do you think conservatives have such an issue with the idea of feminism? Because it's really just women, like sexes, like both sexes are equal, you know, in the political, economic, and social spectrums. So because they're conservative. <laughs> <laughs> no, literally, in the essence of it, being conservative is is an, it's an opposition to change. And at the time, women were not to be equal. They weren't supposed to. That's not what their role was. They were to cook and to clean and to raise children. Mm -hmm. They weren't supposed to be of equal status. So the idea that women should not only be paid equally and treated equally, but that they should, like now we have this this rise of women who make more money than their husbands and they go out and, and we have stay at home dad now and like all these different kind of things. And so of course conservatives are gonna be opposed to that because that's not what ideal American families used to look like. It's not a conservative view. It's very progressive to say that, you know, like if I'm making $100,000 and my husband makes $50,000, then we're making $150,000 mm. instead of thinking like, if I'm making $100,000, he's making $50,000, I need to leave my job because there's no way I should be making more than a man. That's crazy. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah, so this is a topic that I, I think is really interesting. And if you remember correctly, like Candace was talking about the relationship that her grandparents had and how it was this old school relationship where the man was the man and the woman was the woman and, and all these other different things. But I think what's one thing that conservatives forget is that times change. Um, especially within the black community, like we've talked about, you know, yesterday we talked, we had, you know, a gentleman talk about, you know, um, blaming welfare for the reason why, you know, there's, you know, that's killed the black family and we don't talk about mass incarceration, you know, all these men and women, of, you know, that are black that have been locked up and have been institutionalized. But also one thing that is kind of missed in this conversation is that women are now to the point where black women are the most educated demographic you know, in the country. And sometimes it's really hard when you're in these educated spaces to see black men that are like you because they're very few far and in between. And some of them may not want to get married and that's okay. Some of them may want to have a kid by themselves and just raise it because they can financially support it and that be okay. Um, but is that not feminism? Like, I can do it by myself. Like, and it doesn't mean that like men get like just pushed to the wayside. That's not the point. Like, the one thing, like, I used to struggle with feminism, too, as a person, like, at a younger age. But then when I really started to understand it, it was just like, yeah, women want to be equal. And then especially from a black woman's standpoint within our diaspora, especially um, within the African-American community, we see oftentimes black women are the backbone of our, like, of our community. And without them, we would fail. Prime example, take the black woman out of the church. <laughs> and nothing's about to happen ain't no prayer meetings ain't no bible studies and like lauren you were just telling us earlier in between recordings that your father was a pastor but i know for a fact that you probably noticed that all the black women make that church go well definitely yeah and so like and i've seen that in every single black church and that's not saying like the men don't do anything but it's just like more women go to church than men we see this often in, in black churches and my dad is a pastor because he had my mom to push him to be able to get to that point whenever the world was telling him that because of whatever he's done in his past, he shouldn't do what his dream was. He had a black woman standing next to him mm -hmm. and was like, now nah, let's get this done together. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that my dad would be where he is today had he not had the support of my mother. Mm. So And see, that's really important to me to talk about, especially in this conversation about feminism. I'd love to hear other people's opinion as well, because I think what's really important that we understand here about feminism I understand when people say that feminism has been co-opted by white people um, because we talk about, usually when we talk about feminism, we're not talking about black women primarily when we talk about it on social media, especially from a big standpoint when we see it on, when we see it on the news and we see the women's march and we see stuff like this. Like you see Bob Bland, you see Tamika Mallory and all of these other women, but you know, you see these other, you see these other black issues and you'll say, well, what about me? And all of a sudden, nobody wants to, you know, prop up the black woman who's, you know, been doing all the work from the jump. And it always seems like black women are the first to do the work, but the last to get the support. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I just want to get some people's opinions on that. So. Toxic masculinity. So we're actually going to get to that um, in just a second. But I just one thing about feminism, and we'll bleed, right? We'll just go straight into toxic masculinity because, you know, she really did go right into it talking about, you know, I grew up where men were men, and I'm like, being a, no sissy men. like no sissy yeah. men. And I, I, I really took issue with that immediately with the sissy men comment because I was kind of like, 
what do you mean by sissy men? And like, like, because and like for her to say that she's not homophobic, but then you use that type of language, like it's just like uh, you were saying earlier with you know emotionally triggering words, like you're emotionally charging people with certain trigger words that you know are going to upset them because there's nothing sissy about being emotional. Like, I get it. Like, I don't identify myself as a feminist. I've told you guys this before. What I do identify myself as an accomplice to womanism and feminism because I believe that as a man, I can't really identify myself as a feminist because I am the standard within the black community. Like I understand that I benefit because of patriarchy and because of misogyny, because I am a man and I am a cis hetero black man. So I am the standard. So still, even though racism exists, I still benefit because misogyny and patriarchy. Like patriarchy is God in this country. It's one of the building blocks of this country. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I know in that, that I can be toxic if I wanted to be, and I would go unchecked. And even if even if a black woman checked me, there's not really anything that she can do about it. She can say, well, you're trash and then that's it. But I can just go find another woman who will deal with it. Like and so let's go into the toxic masculinity conversation because you are black women. Um, You know, we often hear, you know, we often hear toxic masculinity is a new it's a new coin term that's been out for like a couple of years now. I used to not like it personally, but I've grown to actually love it now because I understand why it's being used because we live in a society where masculinity has truly not been taught in our society like what it actually is and what it means to be masculine and I'll give my definition for well I'll give my definition later of what I feel like it means to be masculine but I want to hear you guys opinions well for me I feel like just the notion of just like heteronormativity like just the notion that being straight and being male and being you know, like, you know, straight and male is like the norm, and that if you're anything outside of that, it's wrong. Um, and I feel like for Candace Owens, for her to say that toxic masculinity is not um, a thing or that it doesn't exist is very, it's very dangerous, um, especially because she said that at a school where it's predominantly women. Um, mm. So to say that and to say, well, you need to watch out for the women because the women are actually the ones attacking each other more and to not acknowledge that that stems from that, from uh, misogyny is, is just detrimental. Like it is dangerous, it's detrimental, it's not okay. Um, yeah, I, I was extremely triggered by that, especially because I come from a household where, like my mom is queer, so I grew up with my mom telling us, teaching us about heteronormativity, toxic masculinity and all these things from a very early age. So, um, yeah, to be at an institution and those ideas are still being passed around and some people might actually consider those ideas to be true, like, oh, yeah, she right, like, these girls be hating more than uh, these dudes or whatever, you know? Or these, I I forgot, we can cuss on here, so. But anyway, um, (laughs) yeah, so it is dangerous to to put that narrative as the narrative that's correct. Um, One thing that Candace had said, um, she said she hates fake people which I thought was really funny because as a woman, how could you hate feminism? That I don't understand that. To, to me, I think she's fake because she's just saying, she just wants to get a reaction out of people. That's what I feel she's really good at. She just wants to, I feel like she's projecting other people's views mm. and she wants to get a reaction out of everyone because feminism is in support of women being equal 
and men and women being equal and I just don't understand. It just doesn't make sense how you cannot be in support of that. And I think one thing that people are forgetting in this conversation is that toxic masculinity leads to women being murdered. And that's one thing that doesn't get talked about, really. Like, toxic masculinity, like, a form of toxic toxic masculinity, I feel is catcalling. Like, mm-hmm. it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's, it's something that's, like, and it's a, it's a simple thing. It's, you know, you guys are in, you know, New Orleans, so it's say love, say red, you know. <laughs> Um, in a red shirt. You know, it's it's it's, and you might have on a blue shirt. So you like, did I wear red today? Like, let me make sure. But also at the same time, it's like that these women don't feel safe, like around these men, and it should have never gotten to this point. Like it shouldn't have, and I'm disappointed that it has. But I also have to understand that I played a role in allowing it to get to this point because I was I am a beneficiary. I'm a beneficiary of toxic masculinity and patriarchy and misogyny. So I enabled this type of behavior to allow it to happen because I let it go unchecked. Like, we have an issue with young men that are coming to, coming on this campus that are freshmen that never learned about consent in high school mm-hmm. and from their parents. And so they don't know that you just can't touch a young woman without her permission. They feel like that is a given because they are a man. And that is a problem in itself, and that leads to women being murdered. There was a woman that was just murdered because of domestic violence in my city in Mobile County. And it makes me wonder, like, what is going on? And the first thing that people always wonder is, well, what did the man, like, well, what did the woman do? Or what is she saying? All these other things. And I'm like, a man put his hands on a woman. Now, I'm not about putting my hands on nobody, because I'm all about keeping my hands to myself, even though I say my hands is rated E for everybody. But at the same time, always keep your hands to yourself, like regardless, because there's no reason to resort to violence, especially with the person that you love. And you shouldn't, this person shouldn't have to be your mama, your cousin, your auntie, your grandma, your daughter, in order for you to actually give a damn about them. Like, because I find that to be a problem because they're still a human being. So the fact that you try to separate and you like, well, she shouldn't have did that or she shouldn't have been wearing that or she shouldn't have been doing this because that makes an excuse for the toxic masculinity that's being spewed. Like, I've seen men kill somebody just because they haven't given somebody their number because they were catcalling. Like, that is a problem. Like, you guys have a situation that you guys have told me about on this campus. There's all these trainings that are going out about women protecting themselves on campus when it's a 77% majority women campus and then at the same time you're not telling these boys hey don't rape people mm-hmm. like and it's really that simple like don't rape people right. period like how does that happen like like how does that happen and like a girl sometimes is not going to be able to have a friend to walk with every single night to this campus I've walked around this campus it's pretty big it's a big box Right. And you have to get to your dorm some way, somehow. And you're just trying to get to class or you're just leaving from class and somebody may not be able to walk with you. But the one thing that shouldn't happen is that shouldn't be deemed her fault. Like, what is she supposed to do? Call somebody to come get out their room and come do that? If anything, it should be to the point now, if you were actually teaching and preaching consent to the young men on this campus, that if you saw a young woman walking by herself, the first thing that you should say is, hey, you shouldn't be walking by yourself. Let me walk with you or let me call the police. If you don't feel comfortable, we walking next to you. Let me call, you know, the campus police so they can escort you to your room. That should actually be the proper procedure, but that doesn't happen, right? Right. So 
like we're living in an age now where people are talking about like there's it's not an attack on masculinity anytime that that I, this is something that i've noticed and i'll let you guys you know chime in and talk uh eventually <laughs> sorry but anytime that women check something that men do because we're such privileged individuals, because we have this male privilege, we all of a sudden say, whoa, 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 you're attacking me. And it's not really an attack. It's just a constructive critique because they're like, look, my life would be a whole lot easier and I would make your life a whole lot easier if you didn't do this. Like if you cut this out, like if you just cut it out and you understood where I was coming from, but because you can't understand the actual life experience that I live as a woman because you've only lived your life in privilege as a man, you can't see that concept. Please, please chime in. And uh, a big thing, especially on college campuses, is that when it comes down to, to boys, and I'm going to call them boys and not men because I feel like this is a little boy mentality. This is this sense of needing to have dominance over a female, and then when a female calls it out to you, then all of a sudden she's an attacker. I get this a whole lot because I am a very strong person, and I'm a very avid per person and I speak my mind a whole lot. So the first thing I'll say to anyone, and then the first thing is they're like, oh, you're one of those feminists, aren't you? And it's like, yeah, I am. I'm one of those feminists. I'm one of those people who stands out and who's going to tell you that this is not okay. So then you see guys, and they're with their girlfriends and stuff, and they're in the cafeteria, and they're groping her. And you can tell that she's uncomfortable, but she doesn't want to say anything about it because, well, this is my boyfriend, and he feels like he has the right to do that because, well, this is my girlfriend. And then I've literally seen a girl who's like, you know, stop. And then, like, her boyfriend got mad and pushed her, pushed her to the wall. And she's like, oh, well, he's just joking. No, that's not a joke. That 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 is that is literally two different forms of assault in five minutes that just happened to you. But if you say anything about it, then you're not letting a man be a man because oh well, you know boys will be boys, and it's something that we're taught even whenever we're so yeah. I'm sorry, y'all. I'm going on a rant, but like this is something so like big to me. Like we're taught when we're girls, when we're children, that boys will be boys. And so girls just have to find this way to deal with it. You know, catcalling, well, boys will be boys. Literal sexual assault, this boy has put his hands on me inappropriately, well, boys will be boys. You know, and nobody's ever saying, when when are these boys, when, why does that make him, why, why is that boys being boys? Why does that make you masculine to demean me, you know? And then... They expect women to change who we are because boys will be boys. Like when they say, oh, you shouldn't have worn that. Why? Because boys will be boys so they can't keep their hormones in check. Like, oh, like, oh, she had this on, so that made me feel like, oh, she wanted it. Like, you hear that. I've heard that a lot, personally. Like, I've heard that a lot. So it's not fair to women that we have to change who we are because, like you said, boys will be boys. Yeah, why do women have to modify, adapt, and overcome just to survive? Like these are, and these are survival tactics. Like, and I think that's what what's kind of scary because you should never have to resort to survival tactics just to live and exist peacefully. Like that is crazy to me. You know, Michelle Obama once said that you know we love our sons but we raise our daughters, and I find that to be extremely interesting because when you grow up as a woman. And as, a, and as a young girl, you learn so many different things about precautions that you have to take 
And mm-hmm. it strips you of your innocence sometimes because you can't even, like, exist as a child. Like, if you become more fully developed faster than everybody else, you... You're a yeah. fast little girl yeah. automatically off of rip. Or we see in the education system that black, the young black girls are suspended and punished more severely than anyone else, yeah. just like young black boys are. Because, oh, well, your, your skirt is, it's not that your skirt is too short, it's just that your body fully developed before anybody else and that your shirt is too tight or something mm-hmm. of that nature. And all of a sudden your breasts are exposed and it's like, no, like, it's just genetics. Like, why are you punishing this girl for, like, literally having the body that she was born with? You wanted to, like, if she wore a trash bag, she would still be harassed. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter what she's wearing. What you're wearing doesn't, like, excuse, like, doesn't make excuses for somebody to assault you. Like, and that's why I found, like, the, her comments about feminism and toxic masculinity to be so problematic because I was like, do you understand what you're really saying when you say that? Because you're saying like, oh, this is just an attack against men. And for dog whistle politickers, like this is easy to piss men off. And they're like, yeah, you know, you're saying this about this and like toxic masculinity. And I hear this from black men that toxic masculinity doesn't exist and that this is just something that's made up. But also at the same time, like you're not. But anytime that I mention taking accountability and calling out your homeboys for saying dumb shit, like all of a sudden it's, oh, well, that's not my business. That's not my place and all this other stuff. But then you preaching about, you you turn back around and you preach that, oh, we need to take care of each other as a community. So we need to take care of each other as a community, but you can't call out your homeboy for touching a girl inappropriately while you on the quad just because, oh, she was walking around and she had them tights on and she's, and you know, you just standing outside checking her out. And so you grab her ass all of a sudden and you don't say, yo, that's not cool. And I'm not saying that I saw somebody do this on campus, but I'm saying that this is normalized behavior Mm -hmm. and this could be happening on campus. There's more women than men on this campus. Mm -hmm. So for a guy, he's probably feeling like, the world is my oyster right now. <laughs> like all, And I will not lie. I've seen a lot of beautiful women on this campus in the last three days, all shapes and sizes and colors and shades. And I'm like, oh, my God, I don't think I would have made it if I was 18, <laughs> 19 years old on this campus. But also at the same time, I had to check myself. I said, why wouldn't I have made it? Yeah. Like, is it because I just couldn't control myself? Like, do I not have control over my emotions and my hormones? Like, do I just lead with my genitals at every single turn? Like, why am I, why do I, like, I'm supposed to be this intelligent black man, but I'm still thinking with my genitals. Like, I'm contradicting what I want to be. Like, and I'm blaming it as, oh, well, I'm just a guy and, and, and boys are going to be boys. But at the same time, that's that's such a weak-minded excuse and also, like, to piggyback off of that, to be clear, just, like, to clear, because this is, again, something that I'm very um, passionate about. In my opinion, and correct me if I'm wrong, especially you, uh, Jason, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like as a young black woman, it would be harder for us to control our sexual desires than for a young black guy because boys are so much more allowed to explore themselves sexually. Mm. You find out, you know, a, a young guy is is masturbating or anything like that, then it's kind of like, well, okay, you know, just make sure you do it in secret. But if you find out a girl's doing it, oh, that's not ladylike, don't do that. Don't do that. And so it's kind of like by the time we get to to college and we're females and we're here and we're out of our house and we're free and we have all these young emotions and and hormones and stuff rolling around, but we control it though. We do. And we were always having to control it. 
because we were forced to. Now we're in a place where we don't have to force you. And then there's these guys who they were always allowed to say it. They were always allowed to express it. If they did it, then it was like, boys will be boys. But if we did it, it was like, you know, lock and key. You don't get to come out the house anymore. So I don't even understand. Like, I think it's a weak narrative to say that guys have all these um, hormones and stuff brewing up in them. And that's why they do you what they the do. Hormones, like, we yeah. don't have hormones or we don't have desires. And, like, that means that we should be able to attack a person. Like, that's crazy to me. Yeah, I was thinking that, too. And, and to piggyback off of that, because I do agree, I feel like a woman, like, especially black women particularly, because I can only speak about the only experiences of people that I've been around, it always seems to me like black women have to suppress their sexuality um, and their sexual liberation. Like, you can't even talk about masturbation. Like, I find that to be absolutely... I mean, even as a young boy, like, I was told, you know, don't t don't play with yourself, don't touch yourself, and all this other stuff. But you end up doing it anyway. Like, and technically, nobody ever remembers, like, the day they started because you could have been doing it as a child and you never knew it. Like... It's a normal thing to do, and it's been shunned upon in our in our society. Like, in the black church, I, I mean, and I don't like to harp on the black church or beat up on the black church, but, like, we see patriarchy on full tilt sometimes in, in the black church, and especially with black women. Like, to the churches that I grew up in would always, you know, preach about purity and abstinence for black women, but for young boys it was, you know, you never see a young boy doing a purity pledge, and if he did a purity pledge, he was gay. And that, which was also another form, another whole problematic thing in itself, because you're doing what you just asked the women to do. But because he wants to be a man of faith and, and wait until marriage, which I don't even have a problem with, now he's being associated with being gay, which is also another problem in itself, because that doesn't mean that you're gay. And even if he was gay, there's not a problem with that, first of all. Let's start right there. But what's really bothering me about that is that then you have these women who sit there and they're oppressed and they're oppressed and they're preconditioned to think that when I get on campus that I can't wild out. I, like, I know this is funny, but you hear all the time when you get ready to leave and go to college and that at your church they say, you know, don't lose your way and all this other yeah, stuff. And they, they make sure that you prayed up and don't get in too many organizations because they think when you go to college it's such a liberal place where all this, all this bad stuff is happening and all of these, all these things that you can experiment with. And it's almost like this thing to keep yourself preconditioned. Like you have kids that probably are on this campus that go to their dorm, go to their class, and then they come right back to their dorm and they don't do nothing mm -hmm. because their parents have told them for so many years, don't do this, 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 don't do this. And they can't expose themselves to anything else and grow mentally as a human being and especially for women that hurts because for your sexual experience you can't actually step outside of your comfort zone and if you wanted to sleep with three guys that week you can't do that because oh all, everybody's gonna talk about me when that's your business and if you wanted to do that then you could but it, and that should be your prerogative. But for a guy who's been able to continue to do it because patriarchy, because misogyny, duh, like you're able, like I'm able to like go do what I want and nobody's going to question it. And it, and I hate the excuse that, well, that's just the way it is. No, it doesn't it's have not. to be that way. Like you're just cool with that because you're the beneficiary of it. So that's why you can say, well, that's just the way that it is. Like that's BS. Like, don't tell me that's just the way that it is. It's not the way that it has to be because there's no way in your mind that you can think that's okay and that you can't change the majority's, you know, opinion about it.
And to like tie that back to feminism, that is why I I so wholeheartedly disagree with everything that she was saying about it and why feminism is so important. Mm. Because whenever we can stand up as girls and say, hey, this is how we actually feel. And then you have black mothers now who are coming out and saying, okay, you know, I know what this did to me as a child. So now I'm not going to do this to my daughter. And she is allowed to say that because whether or not her husband agrees, it don't matter because I'm going to say with my peace. That's why feminism is so important because, you know, we talk about, you know, like, don't go out and do all this other kind of stuff and don't go out and, you know, you don't want to be pregnant in college and all this different kind of stuff and let's preach on that. But also, if you, you can't go out and have sex, but you also can't find the pleasure in yourself. And, like, like that's why, and I feel like that's, like, that's another issue with us as a community, but it's breaking because of things like feminism where I've seen personally in my own life, like, like I like a huge shout out to my parents because they're wonderful. They really are. And like I, I didn't really realize all the great things that was really instilled in me until I got to college and I started talking to different people and realized all these ideas and these things that made me everything I am came from these two people who literally did everything for me. And so it's like when I be first began to have any kind of sexual desire, I was able to go and say that to my mom. And my mom was able to to say, like, to let me know, like, okay, yeah, but guess what? Like, this is normal. This isn't a weird thing. And back in the 50s, absolutely not. Not only would I not have been able to say that to my mom, but that would have been because my mom wouldn't have been able to say those things herself. Mm. And she's married. And she's having sex because she's having children. Like, And she still wouldn't even be able to talk about her sexual desires. And that's crazy because that leads to so many young girls being so... Se- Un- uneducated sexually and so many issues going on that's why we have so many diseases and stuff spreading and all these young people getting in these situations they can't get out of that is broken now on both spectrums men and women because of feminism and i feel like with that too it falls back on education a lot of high schools and middle school are scared to talk about that type of stuff because of their parents and how it affects children i mean my teacher almost got fired for talking about that so mm-hmm. i feel like for that to be done we need to start introducing that at a younger age to children and put that in like our new curriculum. And one thing I know, because we're just talking about feminism from a sexual liberation standpoint, but we're not even talking about from an economic standpoint or a political standpoint. Mm-hmm. Black women are paid less than white women, mm-hmm. um, like on a on a huge scale. Black, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. and only not only from a socio and from a political standpoint, like it's crazy. Like, how many like Supreme Court justices are women? Like maybe one or two and then not only that but about two and then not only and only two women have served on the supreme court in its entire history but yet we have a supposed or accused rapist that just got you know mm-hmm. appointed right. to a position that and he has you know proven that he will side he will you know sit on the side of the right when it comes to issues that involve women's rights like a woman's right to choose and like when we talk about you know those type of things it's really dangerous like it's crazy and not only that but you know from a political standpoint like Stacey Abrams could very well be the first black woman to ever be a governor in this country's history but patriarchy and misogyny is the reason why it took this long for it to get there like and not only that but racism as well because she's black obviously 
But like that's one thing that we're kind of forgetting about this because when most people talk about feminism, what are they usually equated to? Sex. Oh, these women yeah. just want to have sex with whoever they want to and, and get away with it. And and, and, and then, honestly, you're not getting away with anything. First of all, that's it's nothing to get away with. Yeah. They always men like a lot of men's mind and people like Candace Parker always equated to sex and they they think that you want to be like when birth control first came out and and these old white conservative Republicans would uh, think that it was just about oh these women just want to be whores and it's like no like I want to be able to protect myself and if I want to have sex like I don't want to have to have a child like in order to you know get pleasure because just like you guys get pleasure I get pleasure. Like, I often say many times, men don't like women. They like having sex with women. Matter of fact, they like using women's bodies to masturbate um, for that matter because they don't know how to actually please a woman. So, and I know that that's, that's a lot to take in and that's a lot to digest. But, like, I feel that way sometimes. And, and we're just talking about, you know, feminism from a sexual standpoint. But I always like to bring up because they always settle on that. And the conversation always goes to sex. But... When they're talking about economics and how women are impacted by this in the workforce and how they're impacted mm-hmm. by this in the political on the political platforms, all of a sudden they just keep going back to, oh, it's about this. It's like when we talk about accountability for black men in the black community and calling out things and you be and or domestic abuse, it's like, well, it, they always say, well, it's something something's wrong with the with the men that you choose. It's not that we're trash, it's about you being able to choose, it's that you're choosing trash men. No. These men have been have grown up being privileged their whole entire life and been able to do what every everything that they've wanted to do, like Lauren has just commented on, and be able to be the boys that they want to be and be these toxic, you know, people for so long. And then when it finally goes checked, they're like, whoa, 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 what you talking about? I'm a good dude. I do this. I do this. I do this. And they think obviously that because I'm a good person that I deserve something. When that doesn't mean that you deserve anything whatsoever. Oh, yeah. Hard pill to swallow. A lot of nice guys who are like, girls don't like nice guys. Newsflash, we love nice guys. Y'all are just not as nice as you think you are in your head. You're being nice to your extension and thinking that because you're nice to me, I'm supposed to reward you with my body is, is a no. Like, and to tie all that back to Candace and a lot of her comments, she made a comment about how under the... Um, Trump's administration, black people are working more now than ever. There's more black-owned businesses as if it had anything to do with him. No. To be clear, we are working hard right now. Black businesses are flourishing right now because of our distrust in the government. Because finally, for the, for the, since literally the, since civil rights time, black people are finally now once again being like, hey, y'all, if we band together, we really can do something here. We're doing that because we don't trust the government, not because the government is giving us anything. And because as women, we are finally in a place where we're like, I'm going to support women. So yeah, maybe I'm going to pay $35 for a t-shirt, but if my sis made this t-shirt, I'm going to pay $35 because I want to support her because I want to see her be great instead of going to Walmart and buying the same shirt for $5. I'm not going to do it. And that's not because Trump is absolutely doing anything for us. That's because finally we doing stuff for us and because we have this feminist movement going on where it's like the feminist movement isn't just about even getting the power from people but we're so much more empowering in each other now mm-hmm. like like I just like I see so much especially on HBCU campuses since you know we're talking about being um, black and in college or whatever the hashtag is but um, like like 
we are so overwhelmingly supportive of each other. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. There's so many businesses starting right here on Dillard campus. There's a guy right now who he sells merchandise mm -hmm. and he sells his shirts and we're buying them. We're doing it because because you started a business because that's something that we just want to support. And I thought that it was crazy that she really sat there and tried to act like that had anything to do with the Trump administration because the rise of black businesses is not because the government is helping us. It's because the government is hurting us. And we're, mm. like, done with it now. Yeah, so we're going to take a quick break. And we're going to come back, and we're actually going to talk about Candace and her comments about talking white and uh, ghetto names. And uh, we'll be right back in just a second. All right, and we're back. We are actually uh, coming to talk about one more topic, and that's about Candace and her topics about, quote-unquote, talking white and um, her mother giving them non-ghetto uh, names. Oh. And let's just hear the clip real quick, and we'll come back and we'll actually do some commentary on it. My story starts in Stanford, Connecticut. I grew up in a really small apartment. I have two sisters. We grew up in, in low-income housing where the exterminator would have to come once a week to get the roaches out of our apartment. Um, you know, my mom didn't have a job. Uh, her very first job that she had, my mom didn't finish high school. She grew up in and out of uh, group homes in her life, one of nine brothers and sisters. The majority of her brothers and sisters served time in prison. When I was a little girl, I went to go see my uncles in prisons. And that seemed normal to me. I don't say that to be a victim. That was normal to me. I loved my uncles. I still love my uncles. That was just the lifestyle that I had. I grew up with a bunch of cousins and this was the lifestyle that I had. People that were on food stamps, that were on welfare. This was a lifestyle that I had. But because I speak proper English today, because I complete sentences, now all of a sudden I'm white, apparently. That's it, I'm instantly white. And it's fascinating to me to get comments from black people that say, I talk white. What are you saying when you say to someone that because you speak English, you're white? You're saying black people are stupid. That's exactly what you're saying. That you think black people are stupid. If you think that me completing a sentence in good English means that I'm white, you think that black people are incapable of speaking good English. I learned to speak good English because one thing that my mother was adamant about was that all of her children, she had two things. The first was that she didn't want us to have what she called ghetto names. She wanted us to have very easy names. So I'm Candace and my sisters have very easy names. Ashley, my other sister's Brittany. The second thing was that she wanted to make sure that we read a ton of books. So despite the fact that she didn't drive, that we didn't have any money, my mom used to march us two blocks every single day after school to the library. We had to pick a book, we had to read the book. And I, I really developed a love for books and a love for reading um, and a love for writing when I was a very small child. The first thing I ever wanted to be was a rapper. I used to, to sit in my room. I still me laughing about it. I can still, I can still have a rap. <laughs> I used to sit in my room and I used to write rhymes and poetry and my sisters, you know, we were thinking we were in a, a band um, and they, my sister would sing and I would be the rapper. And that was the first thing because I loved lyrics so much and it felt to me like an escape. Reading a book, getting caught up in somebody else's world became an escape for me. So by the time I was eight years old, I was reading novels that were way bigger than my head, constantly trying to read whatever my mom had on her bookshelf because she was a member of a book club and she'd get different books every month. That's the reason why I speak good English. I, I love books. It's, it's really that simple. All right, so we just listened to Candace's audio about talking white and um, 
ghetto names, if that's what we want to call it. So I just wanted to get some opinions on this, and this is going to be our last topic um, before we kind of wrap everything up. And I really had a problem with this conversation because, like, I get it. Like, okay, talking white, I dealt with that as a kid, like, because, you know, I was raised to, you know, enunciate my words and say everything correctly. And, like, when I would get around black kids who were not, you know, used to that, they would say, oh, you're talking white. And I didn't understand that concept because I would be like, how do you talk like a color? Um, Didn't make sense to me. Uh, But also, I, like, was raised in a household where Ebonics was, like, condemned as well. Like, and I didn't understand it. And I'm like, why would you condemn something that we created? Um, And I kind of understood that at an early age. I was like... I never thought that Ebonics was something bad. I just thought it was something that you said around your people. Like, if you said y'all, my people understood what I was saying. Or if I said ain't, you understood what I was saying. Or, you know, girl instead of girl, like, you knew what I was saying. Like, that's just what it was. But what I've understood is, like, when Candace was saying those things, it made me really uncomfortable. I want to get you guys' opinion because I know that a lot of you guys are Generation Zers. Like, you're younger. So this concept of, like, talking white like, usually was a millennial issue, but now, like, with Generation Z students, like, it's mostly, like, everybody talks the same, so, and, like, white people appropriate everything, so, (laughs) including our vernacular, so I don't, I find it weird that this conversation is still being brought up, and I love that she uses it as, like, a bullying tactic, like, saying that she was bullied like this, it's like, it's not bullying, girl, stop it, for one, nobody's getting bullied for the way that they talk, I, I, I never got bullied for it, it was just, Something that was a quick conversation that was funny, and then all of a sudden it was over. It was like, okay, you speak proper, we don't, we're still both black, let's get over it, right? So Yeah, when I was told that, I never took it as like a direct attack on my blackness, so I don't understand where she was going with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that you are a product of your environment, so mm. if that's, if you grew up speaking proper English, then that's okay. And I know white people who don't speak proper English, so I don't believe that there is a such thing as talking black or talking white. It's just however you grew up, what you learned is what you learned. And if you speak a certain way, that's just how you grew up. Yeah, like you don't really see in space, in white spaces, like people are condemned for like not speaking correct English. Like, I mean, people maybe call country, like if you live down south, like, and maybe, you know, and maybe being country, like, is, you know, looked down upon because country is usually associated with being poor sometimes. But, like, one thing that I've kind of understood about it is, like, you never catch the hell that you're catching, like, when, when a black person, like, like that when people are saying like oh you talk white I just don't understand the concept of that like as an intelligent person I'm just like no I'm just speaking you know Merriam Webster's dictionary like I'm just enunciating words like it makes it easier for me to be able to write papers and things like that like I was in spelling bee so it's like I'm used to saying these words correctly in conversations I can be you know quote-unquote ratchet and ghetto and like, I don't have a problem with that. I feel like I should be able to be myself, especially around my people. Like, I shouldn't have to be bottled up. And I think that gets into code switching where you have to put yourself in a box in order to survive. Because sometimes I feel like, you know, this was a coping mechanism for getting through, you know, living in a white world. And then for me, I was told, you know, I spoke to white people. Also, I was told that I spoke to black for 
Mm. So it's mm-hmm. me, like, I have to deal with, like, it kind of bothered me when I was younger, but as I grew up, it's like, I got more accustomed to it, like, more black and black people and white people. So I feel like you shouldn't tell somebody they talk to second grade because, I mean, the way you talk doesn't me- measure your intelligence, that's mm. how I feel. So it's just like, just be careful what you say to people. So um, I actually have, like, a whole lot of opinion on this topic. I actually, my first book, which, I mean, if y'all know, I write so um, my first book that I wrote was about this, and it's called Black Like Me. And it's basically about, you know, people um, um, coming from a white community where I grew up in a, going to feed, um, predominantly white schools and then being too black for them and then mm-hmm. transferring to a black school and then people telling me that I was white. And it was like, that was crazy to me because, like, you know, she said, growing up, everyone in my family talks like me. Everybody spoke well, like you know, spoke properly. Everybody used correct grammar. Nobody, I mean, of course, like we said, y'all, we did all the stuff when we were chilling, but everybody still spoke well. And so in the book, I talk about my kind of my journey trying to find myself in between this. And the thing that I got from it is that she tried to make it seem like it's black people attacking black people. I don't think it is. What I found from it was two things. One, it just stemmed from ignorance. And what I mean by ignorance, I mean actually the lack of knowledge. Mm. If you grow up in an area where there are no black people talking like this, and then you go to these schools where you hear, you know, these white teachers who do talk like this, of course that's what you're going to associate it with. Mm. So they're not insulting you or insulting themselves because she was like, they're telling you that that means black people are all stupid. No. Mm. What they're telling you is like, this is just not what I've heard from people who look like me. Mm. And you look like me, but you talk like what I've seen from them. And so instead of feeling attacked, all I did was I began to talk to black like children and my peers and all those Mm -hmm. other kind of things about what it really means and how like how many like I was like like we live in a a Michelle Obama and Barack Obama kind of time where it's like of course like like now you're seeing so many more black people who do speak well and so instead of using that to feel victimized I used that story to create something that now is a tool to help other people understand. Mm. And another thing that really bothered me about when Candace was speaking is when she did talk about um, her not her mom not wanting to give her a ghetto name. Mm. Like, I understood where she was coming from because my mom, she wouldn't consider it a ghetto name, but it is um, common for if your name sounds a certain way, you'll be perceived differently. So mom, she's like, oh, I want to give my kids name where I could see them having the like um, doctor in front of their name because she knows it might be messed up, but that's how it's set up. But we should not have to change our culture just to fit in with society. Like, for example, um, if anyone goes to watch The Hate You Give, it's a little boy in the movie named Shikani. Mm. Now, to some white people, that might be considered a ghetto name, but it's actually a meme. It means joy. Like, the names that we have have meanings to it, so we should not have to forget our culture just to fit in with, with white people's society and how we fit in. And it's really interesting that you bring up the hate you give, and I love Sakani. He's one of my favorite characters in the book, and we read that book in Reading While Black, so thank you for plugging that. Um, and I see that we got a young author, so we may be back um, in New Orleans again to discuss someone else's book, uh, a young writer in the making, Miss um, Lauren. And uh, just one thing that I want to do to wrap up this conversation about whiteness and talking white and these white names. 
what is always amazing to me is we don't talk about the people who named their child Adio and Birdie and Bronx and Coco and Kazimo and Cricket and Dino um, and Dune and Dream, um, which I mean, uh, the Casino and Everest. <laughs> In uh, Honor, in Huckleberry, in Indiana, in oh, Java, in Journey. Even though Journey's kind of cute, I do like Journey. In um, Maple, in Moroccan, in um, Pilot, in Puma. Erica Badu did name my child Puma, and I think that's adorable. And um, Rainbow, because I like Erica Badu. But like, we don't make excuses for like these white people who name their child crazy names. And like Dream was is a black child, obviously, because that's. Um, Rob Kardashian and um, and Black China's child, but like we don't make these, we don't question these things, and I think it comes from like you said, it's ignorance, just like it's ignorance on Black people's part that it's not, and I don't hold it against you because this is not an environment that you grew up in. I liken it to Black Panther. I just had a friend call me and tell me that he finally watched Black Panther like this past week, and I was like, what? And he told me, he was like, well, I didn't get like what the hype was all about. But I was kind of like, how do you not understand what the hype is? And he was like, if this is what's really inspiring people, we got a lot of work to do. And I said, I get what you're saying about that, but this is what I would push back on that is. What I also didn't realize about him is that he grew up in a family where he was afforded everything that he ever wanted in his life. His father, his father and his mother were extremely wealthy. His life was Wakanda, in a sense. And so that's all that he knew. So when he saw this movie and saw this technically, uh, this technologically advanced society, it didn't wow him for real, for real. You know what I'm saying? But what I explained to him, I said, for a person who's never seen that, I said, that may be the only representation that inspires them to be greater than themselves ever, mm-hmm. ever. So when some, it's the same thing as seeing somebody speak, you know, enunciate all of their words. I won't say speak properly because I think that that's, mm, that's kind of loaded language. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one thing I really think about that is if I see somebody, you know, enunciate all of their words and say words, I guess, quote unquote, correctly, like it would astonish me if I've never heard that before. It's not a sense that I'm making fun of you or I'm bullying you because what I think, especially with these conservative folks, that they love to say like, oh, you're being bullied because somebody says something different, especially these black conservative folk that say this stuff like, oh, well, I wasn't accepted by my own people and I got bullied by black people more than I got bullied by white people. Like, okay, those people were pieces of shit. Like, I get that, but don't blame the entire race on this. Like, and what you're doing when you're talking about ghetto names and all this stuff, because here's a reality. People don't get callbacks on phone and on on interviews because of that type of thinking. And that doesn't mean that we need to name our children white names in order for them to survive and be able to get a job. They should get called back regardless, wherever whether their name is Shaniqua or whether their name is Candace, for, for that matter. And Candace isn't even a white name, which is kind of really surprising to me. But it's a traditional, it's a tradition, it's a traditional African name. So it's a little perplexing to me that she says she got a proper name that wasn't black sounding when the origination of your name is black um so like all of that stuff doesn't like it don't it ain't my ministry that's what i love to say all the time like it ain't my ministry like i see that and i see those type of dog whistle politics and that triggers like she said that to obviously trigger people and a lot of people heard that and you're at an hbcu and you don't think that there's some shaniquas some keisha's like some some angelique's 
you know, some some Nayas, some Imanis, like in like in that crowd, like in that three hundred plus crowd, like you don't think that those people are out there, and you're basically telling them like, oh well, your name is bad, and all of these other things, like, and that's why, like that, I I got a job because I had a white sounding name, and, right. and that's that's the problem. Like you, your mom shouldn't have named you that, and I find that to be like horrible. Like who are you to say that? Like Kamala is what one of the like is not a very white sounding name and she's a US state and Kamala Harris is a U is a United States senator. Mm-hmm. So don't tell me anything about what's a black sounding name and what's a white sounding name. Barack Hussein Obama has got to be the <laughs> <laughs> like like hello, can we talk about that for a second? Go ahead. I just felt like she purposely picked topics to trigger us. Like she knew she's coming yeah. to HBCU and like the way that she was talking, her tone was very bad and her delivery was very bad. So I feel like she purposely did that to make us bad reaction out of it. Mm. And also, if you think about the context, I think we, we missed this and it really kind of dawned on me later. But if you think about the context of which she was talking about her name, it wasn't her name that she was even talking about. She was talking about the superiority, this educational level that she had. Like her parents set her up from success from the beginning because they made her read and that's why she was so educated. Her mom set her up for success. And she threw in the fact that she was so set up for success that her parents didn't name her ethnically. Because not only were they going to make her read, they were going to make her be smart, but they were going to make her look smart on paper. It was such a target to black women in general, and like my name is Lauren Jessica. Like, come on. And my parents did not name me Lauren Jessica because they have anything opposed to eccentric names. Like we have beautiful eccentric names in my family. That's not how or why I got my name. But like, as someone who does have a simple name, but who loves these beautiful names, it's crazy because I was like, I sat there and I literally sat down in my chair because I felt like stabbed. In the chest when she hit that and I was like did anybody else hear that mm-hmm. that slap that she just threw at everybody whenever she's talking about being from the start being set up to be better than all of us mm-hmm. and starting with from her birth the name that she was given that was ridiculous it screams elitism it was and disgusting. to sum this topic up like a name is not going to protect you from racism mm-hmm. A name is not going to, you know, keep you from not getting the, to keep you from getting a job or not getting a job. I have a very, very basic name. My name is Jason Edward Barnes. And if I don't get a job, like, I guarantee you it's not because of my name. <laughs> Nine times out of ten. I've had people think I'm white based on my name when I until I show up. And I'm not going to say that being black is a reason I didn't get the job. I don't know that to this day. That's not something I know. However, I do know through numbers and through statistics and through facts that racial discrimination happens in the workplace and it happens in the hiring process and in these human resource departments and that they can throw your name they can throw you out throw your application out and you could be the most well-qualified person graduated from Dillard University summa cum laude and because of your name they could literally just throw your application in the trash and that happens every single day and the fact that Candace you know thinks that because she grew up in this pedigree and all of these other things is it's bullshit like it's like and that's what it really is that's what it was on Monday it was a bunch of bs um we do know that Candace is a provocateur she's a political provocateur so what she does is to sensationalize things she doesn't give facts as we noticed with every single question that was asked that night 
there was really no answer given. It was always a whataboutism or bringing up something else that had nothing to do with it. I asked a very simple question. What could her politics actually do for black women? She refused to answer the question. She went to my second part of my question about Ronald Reagan and the crack era and the war on drugs to bring up Bill Clinton when I already knew that Bill Clinton put more black people in jail than anybody else. I wasn't talking about that. I was talking about the Nixon era and the Reagan era, but you refused to answer that question. And then when you attempted to answer my question about what you could do for black, what could your brand of politics do for black women, you did not answer the question. You didn't. And the simple, the simple to the answer to that question is nothing. Like, what we've realized, is, and this is what Candace loves to tote, that these liberals are being paid to say all of these sensationalized things, but aren't you getting paid to do the exact same thing by conservatives? Yeah. Like, you're doing the same thing. The only difference is you're on the side that actually runs all the forms of government right now because they have it in control for now. And this is also a podcast that does promote voter registration. So for those listening that are not registered to vote, please get registered to vote as soon as you can. Deadline is coming up soon for a lot of states in the state of Alabama, particularly where I'm from. Um, the 22nd is the deadline. I'm not sure. I want to say um, it's the same time for Louisiana, but I'd actually have to check and I'll fact check that for you guys. But if you don't like what you're seeing in your current terms of politics right now, um, get out there and do something. And when I mean get out there and do something, like for my young people that are listening, find out the voting age, find out the requirements to run for local offices like city council and for mayor and things of that nature and for school boards and things of that nature. Like you have the power to actually control a lot of this stuff and a lot of people don't vote in these elections. So it's a very small number. So if you can get enough people to vote for you, you can actually win. Because half of these people don't really think that you're going to vote anyway. So... Like I said, if you don't like something, run for something. Don't just march. Don't just get mad. Like, I love marching. Y'all know I love a good march, if you know me personally. Like, I love to bring, pull my megaphone out the car because I keep it on me at all times. And anybody who's been in my car knows there's always a megaphone in my car. But one thing I'm also about is about strategically removing people out of office and putting people in office that I know are going to actually invoke change and represent me the way that I want. So once again, I want to thank the ladies and gentlemen who have come and spoke today. Give yourselves a round of applause. This concludes part one of our College While Black series. We will be returning to Dillard very soon to continue this series with a brand new batch of college students. Some of our former college students that have been in this room will probably may, may or may not be back, but we want to get different experiences from different people. Um, on this campus as we continue to do this series of College While Black, under Reading While Black. I want to thank all of you for coming. You guys don't know how much this means to me. This is such, this was such a great time. I felt like I've gotten to know every single one of you so much better um, on this podcast, and I love every single one of you. Um, I can't wait to see you again. I can't wait to come back. Thank you guys so much for listening, and have a great week. Once again, I'd like to thank Dillard University for inviting me on their campus. Thank you to the professors of Cook Hall for allowing me to use their recording studio for the podcast. And a big thank you to the sophomore class council because without them, this would not be possible. 
College While Black is a sub-series of the Reading While Black podcast where we give young black HBCU students the mic to share their experiences attending an HBCU during the Trump administration, as well as discussions with similar and differing opinions on topics ranging from on-campus issues to national and global conversations. This is an interactive podcast where we love feedback, so if you would like to submit questions or leave comments, download the Anchor app on your iPhone or Android device, search Reading While Black Podcast, and select Voice Message. On the book club side of things, we're currently reading DeRay McKissons on the other side of freedom, A Case for Hope. Make sure that you pick this wonderful book up, and my sit-down with DeRay is on the way very soon. Reading While Black's mission, above all else, is to put books written by Black authors in the hands of Black children that do not have access to them. If you would like to donate to our cause, you can donate via our Cash App with the username ReadingWhileBLK, or you can use our Anchor Listener Support feature, where the link is located in our episode description. If you are a student at Dillard University and you're interested on being on the next episode of Reading While Black, or if you're a student at another HBCU and you're interested in us visiting your campus, please email us at readingwhileblackbc at gmail.com or you can DM us on our socials like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat at readingwhileblk. Thank you.